Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The U.S. war in Afghanistan has been going on for 17 long years. For most of it, it looked like there was no end in sight. But this time around, there's been a breakthrough in negotiations, and it seems like a peace deal could really happen. That's what we're going to talk about this week on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham here with Alex Ward. Jen Williams is out this week, so it's just going to be the two of us chattering back and forth. We're going to do our best without Jen. So, Alex, let's talk about this deal, right? This is the brainchild and part of the U.S. negotiator, a longtime diplomat in the region called Zalmay Khalilzad. What happened? So they came up with a framework. Let's be clear, it's not an agreement. It is just kind of like broad outlines of we could do this. And what this is, is the Taliban would agree not to allow any terrorist groups to operate inside of Afghanistan, so Al-Qaeda is out, ISIS is out, and they would also agree to a ceasefire with the Afghan government. That would allow the U.S. then to agree to start withdrawing troops from the country, something the Taliban has wanted a long time, and of course even a lot of Americans after watching the war rage on for 17 plus years now. So this is a framework for U.S. withdrawal, right? It's not like ending the whole war. It's just these are the conditions under which the U.S. will stop fighting the Taliban. Exactly right. And, and another one that is important and the U.S. will definitely fight for is making sure that the Taliban actually agrees to talks with the Afghan government, something the Taliban has refused to do for the main point of they think that the government is a stooge of the U.S., effectively a puppet. And I don't agree with that argument, but you can sort of see why they think that. That's just because the U.S. military has been supporting the Afghan government for decades now. Right. I mean, the argument here is that the U.S. government is the principal military patron of the Afghan government, and so they wouldn't really want to fight a war without the U.S. being there on their side. No, exactly right. The framework that I heard made perfect sense to me, right? Like, this is very clearly what both sides have been wanting for a while. It seems like they've at least come to the table. They've agreed, yes, if we come to a final deal, it will look along these lines. So that seems like progress. Seems like is the operative word here, because negotiations to end the conflict in Afghanistan have been going on for a long time and they have not worked, right? There are some real roadblocks that make it difficult to turn this agreed framework into, you know, an actual peace deal. Yeah, so there are three main roadblocks I think we should talk about. The first one is women's rights. There's a major concern if the U.S. left Afghanistan, the Taliban would effectively take over the country and revert to the brutal rule that it installed before we invaded after 9-11. And there's an f- example you may be very familiar with, which is the case of Malala Yousafzai. So recall that she was shot in the head by the Taliban by virtue of being a young girl who was going to school, right? She's now, of course, a, a major figure speaking out for women's rights in Afghanistan and around the world. But like that was commonplace, sadly, in the country. And so, the, of course, there's a concern that if there's no real major military support for the Afghan government to fight back on the Taliban, the Taliban will run roughshod around the country and revert to that style. Right. It's hard to overstate how terrible 
Afghanistan under the Taliban was right. in terms of its repression of women. Women weren't allowed to leave the home on their own volition. They weren't allowed to occupy any major position in society. Forced veiling was common, right? Like, it is about as bad a system of government as one could imagine. So it makes a lot of sense that the U.S. would condition any withdrawal on the Taliban agreeing not to do that again. And it seems like they might in this case, right? Like in some of the negotiations, their position has been that they allow women the right to work, to engage in trades, to be educated, and even serve in top government roles, right? Like they've made a lot of concessions on this front, which I have a lot of difficulty wrapping my head around given the way that they operated beforehand. Absolutely. Let's be clear. The Taliban of then is not the Taliban of now for the very morbid reason of a lot of them have died off, right? It's just been decades of fighting. And so they also could just be tired and go, all right, fine. If this is what it takes for the U.S. and and foreign troops to leave, maybe we'll do this. But also let's not lose sight of the fact that it requires the trust of women to ultimately somewhat agree to this. Um, We're seeing some of that in a way. We've seen some female politicians from Afghanistan. They met with the Taliban in Moscow recently just to hear them out. And one of those women was like specifically targeted for assassinations by the Taliban. And and it's astounding to me that they would do that, the strength that it must take. But you can see their reasoning why, which is if their country is eventually going to lead to some sort of peace or some sort of stable situation, these women are, are willing to listen to the Taliban and see if they're serious. Of course, who knows, right? Right. Well, there are also two pretty decent reasons to believe that they might be, right? The first one is they want the peace deal. They want the U.S. out. They want the fighting to end. They want more room to operate. And if that's what it takes in a sort of realist political sense, then maybe they'll make concessions on their hardline ideology. The second is the amount of repression it would take to change Afghanistan from where it is right now after almost two decades of no Taliban in charge. Much of Afghan society has changed dramatically. Women occupy a lot of roles that they didn't occupy before. It's by no means perfect, but it would be very difficult for the Taliban to force things to go back to the way that they were. So from their point of view, maybe it makes sense to give up, again, on this ideological objective that would be hard to accomplish no matter what, and try to get some more power just to consolidate your control over territory. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it could be quite the concession on the Taliban's part. Of course, in in the grand scheme of of life, it is not a concession. You should just treat everyone fine. So that's roadblock one, right? How the Taliban would agree to treat women and and minorities, frankly, when and if U.S. and foreign troops leave. Roadblock two is that the Afghan government is not a part of the talks yet. At the end of the day, what the U.S. has been trying to do is get the Taliban and the Afghan government to chat, which is important because those are the two most vital institutions of governance at this point in Afghanistan. As I mentioned earlier, the Taliban isn't willing to do that because they feel that the Afghan government is a stooge of the U.S. and the Afghan government isn't willing to talk to the Taliban because why talk to the insurgents, right? It's kind of like the we don't negotiate with terrorists position. They're also there, of course, worried that the Taliban may want some sort of power-sharing agreement because it also is a powerful institution. So the fact that the Afghan government is involved in the talks is a major impediment because that is the ultimate deal, so to speak. It's especially difficult because there are incommensurate views of what the Afghan government should look like in the future between the two sides, right? The Taliban, one of the things they're insisting on is that there be some kind of Islamist government. Mm -hmm. The Afghan government is modeled along more liberal democratic lines, and that makes it trickier to reconcile the eventual state of the state in Afghanistan, and it's not clear if that can be accomplished 
in negotiations. Right. And to complicate these matters further, I mean, the Taliban is frankly winning the war. They're gaining more territory, more control over the population. They're basically controlling or contesting over 40% of the country. So the Taliban doesn't really have a good reason to come and, and surrender. As you mentioned, they're looking for some sort of power sharing agreement. But then what does that even look like? What ministries do they run? if at all. Like, how powerful can some of its members be? Like, should the Taliban be able to run for, for president, right? So these are the, these are very sticky issues that we haven't even gotten to yet. And that actually connects really well to the third big roadblock that we want to talk about today, which is President Trump's frequently and loudly stated desire to get out of Afghanistan. The Afghan government needs U.S. support if it wants to wage an indefinite war against the Taliban without compromising. If the Taliban knows the U.S. wants to pull out and will agree to just get out because the president has said it very frequently, then they could broker some kind of separate deal with the U.S., or if not broker, then just wait the U.S. out, lie about whatever it is they're going to do later, and then when the U.S. leaves, proceeds to break the terms of the agreement, betting the U.S. wouldn't get back into the country because Trump wants out so badly. Exactly. There's a famous maxim that was attributed to a Taliban official, which was, you guys have the watches, we have the time. To your point, the Taliban could effectively wait out the U.S. It seems like that time is running out for America because Trump keeps sort of saying, or at least considering, withdrawing half of the U.S. troops that are in the country. So that is a massive move. And so the Taliban, you could imagine, is taking advantage of this situation by going, yeah, 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 we'll give women rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll play nice with the Afghan government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get out of here. And then once they're gone, they, again, run roughshod over the country. Yeah, uh, this is why I'm personally not willing to celebrate yet, right? I think it's very difficult to believe an Islamist insurgent group, one that uh, has done a lot of truly awful things over the course of just the war, let alone what it did when it actually controlled the government, right? And to believe that, given that they have strong incentives to lie, that they're serious about these compromises when it comes to women's rights and freedoms and stuff like that. Right. And I will be honest, I share that skepticism, but I have, in, in reporting on this, have talked to experts who share some sort of optimism. So, uh, and, and some of it is actually we've, we've talked about. So the first one is like, this is just a deal the Taliban has won for a long time. They just may want to make a deal and end the war. The U.S. at the end of the day has what the Taliban wants, which is control over the military forces that are backing the Afghan government. And, you know, if the U.S. leaves, NATO probably will follow. So we do have a, a, car, a big card to play, if not the biggest card to play in these negotiations. A second one is that just we have seen the Taliban moderate their stances in the past, even if temporarily. So, for example, there have been instances where, like, the Taliban will burn down a village and then some locals will say, hey, you know, guys, like, that may be a step too far, and they kind of go, oh, okay, we won't do that again. And, and they've sort of pushed back. And, and a famous example is from last summer where basically at the behalf of the Afghan government, they were like, can we just have three days of no fighting? And that happened. Like the Taliban stopped fighting for three days, which showed the immense control it still has over its fighters. That's a very good sign when it comes to these kinds of negotiations. And then finally, the Taliban is, seems to be coming to a realization that it knows that it can't govern Afghanistan like it used to, right? The international community would just be against it. And so it might be willing to make some sort of deal where it doesn't get the grand prize, but a pretty big one. That's not necessarily very palatable, right, when we put all those things together, but this seems like we're in a realm of best bad option. Yeah, it's just difficult to tell how serious that kind of signaling is uh, when they have, again, a tremendous incentive to dissemble and have frequently said time is on their side. 
So they could be talking to Western analysts and observers and reporters and telling them what we're willing to compromise. They could signal through things like these three-day breaks that they're actually willing to compromise, when in reality, when it comes to the big issues, they're not, and they can win militarily if the U.S. and NATO get out and they won't come back in. That could be their calculation, and they could be lying to all of us. The question is, how much trust can we put into the reporting and the expert analyses based on talking to Taliban people? And it's it's tough to say. It's just – sometimes you may have to take a leap of faith in governance. And I think that's where we're at, right? I mean, we've heard from Zalmay Khalilzad kind of say, look, and the State Department, who I've talked to about this, they're like, look, nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. So I think everyone is aware that this is just the very initial stages. But to to be clear, like this is the furthest we've gotten in nearly 20 years, right? So yay to a certain extent, uh, but like let's be very cautious with our optimism. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about a country that literally changed its name to get into NATO. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk about a country that went to incredible lengths to join NATO, and that country is Macedonia, or should I say North Macedonia, because that's their new name. They changed it as a condition of joining the Western Alliance, which is Weird to think about and involves a lot of strange history. So, Alex, take us back and help us understand what's going on here. This is one of my favorite and most frustrating European like disputes. So, you need to know that Macedonia, as it exists, was part of Yugoslavia, which dissolved in 1991. Once Yugoslavia dissolved, Macedonia becomes its own country, and that really angered Greece for the reason that Greece has a territory in its north that's also called Macedonia, and they effectively think that the country has just been stealing its name, and on top of that, it's Greek culture, and they've just been having a fight over, like, who controls the real Macedonia. Yeah, this is actually a big deal, right? Because, uh, among other people, Alexander the Great hails Mm -hmm. from Macedonia, and both— The Greek Macedonia and the independent country of Macedonia claim Alexander the Great as part of their heritage. So there's dispute over who gets control over these historical symbols, and both sides are really riled up about it. Yeah, and so Macedonia's been wanting to join NATO for a long time, and you can imagine why they would want to do that. Russia has been trying to have a lot of influence in its region, the Balkans, for quite some time. Being a part of the alliance helps protect it from that influence, and especially, of course, military invasion that gives it the space to grow as a country. And for NATO, I mean, Macedonia, let's be honest, is not going to offer a lot of military capabilities. It's not going to be that much stronger because the country is in, but what it does do is, like, help NATO— push back on Russia, effectively, in a bigger geopolitical sense. And in 2008, Macedonia tried. They'd been trying since 1999 uh, to get in. In 2008, they made a concerted push, and they failed because Greece said no. Yeah, just to put a point on, I mean, like, here's what you need to know about how NATO works. So for a country to join, all of the members have to say yes. You'd be shocked to know, as you mentioned, that there was really just one leading the charge, right? So that's the Greeks. So, so even if all the members said yes— Greece goes no, and Macedonia isn't in. And so that highlighted this fight over the name, right? Because that was really the sticking point for why Macedonia couldn't get into the alliance. Right. And that had pretty significant political ramifications in Macedonia. People were pretty mad. Uh, That and other reasons led to the election of a right-wing populist government that— did things like build Alexander the Great statues and and generally just pissed off Greece. Trolls. Yeah, and they were just not going to join NATO. They weren't particularly excited about the idea of joining NATO either, right? Right-wing nationalists in former Soviet states generally are not super pro-Western. 
in 2016, that government got replaced by a social democratic, a more standard left government in Europe, and they renewed the effort to try to get into NATO. They met with the Greek prime minister, they sat down, they talked about it, and they hammered out this compromise, which is that Macedonia changed its name to North Macedonia, implying that there's Greek Macedonia, which is like its own thing, and then North Macedonia, which is the country. And so it gets to keep its name, but also just adds an adjective. And then the Greeks are, are cool with letting it into NATO. Right. So now, like, we're good. It's been years of the, of fighting. Now we're good. So we went from the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia to the Republic of Macedonia. And that, again, even though you've we've gotten to this point, you may go, this sounds crazy. But, like, I was in Europe— in 2010s, just studying this stuff. And like, I was talking to Macedonians and Greeks about this and they were up in arms about it all the time. Like that name change is everything. And it's why it really looks like the country of North Macedonia, as we should now call it, is heading into the alliance. There is, however, a potential stumbling block. Right. So later this year, in theory, every NATO government has to approve North Macedonia's entry into the alliance. They don't just do it symbolically. Their parliaments or Congress, in the American case, has to approve it. We don't know what Trump thinks about this. We know that he has expressed skepticism about the U.S.'s need to defend smaller countries. He picked on Montenegro for a while right, right. for some reason, uh, despite them having the best Eurovision entry of some time. <laughs> oh, my favorite. <laughs> um he seems not to believe that it's in America's interest to pledge to defend small countries, especially former Soviet states, that Russia might consider part of its sphere of influence. And so he could possibly put up a stink in Congress later this year when they have to approve North Macedonia's entry to NATO. Right. And and just to be somewhat fair here, there is an argument even among American scholars that say, look, NATO— is a bit obsolete, but more importantly, if you want to expand the alliance members, you have to know that you're just going to piss off Russia more and more and more and more, and that that may actually be counterproductive to American interests. There are others who, of course, would say, no, this is actually strengthens us because it strengthens the transatlantic alliance, and it makes us stronger as we combat Russia and other forces, and of course, it shows the democratic values. Well, it's no, not only that. Like, the yeah. Russians are already mad at the United States, well, right. right? Like, there's not much that can be done about repairing that relationship under President Vladimir Putin. So you might as well create a more united front in Europe and make it harder for Russia to make political inroads into more countries that it would want to suborn or somehow influence. And being a NATO member makes it very difficult for Russia to uh, try to take control of your government in the way that it has in the past. Sure, but if you if you are President Trump and what you want to do is be friends with Russia, as he's consistently said, one of the ways you could almost give an olive branch at us would be like, you know what? We won't allow Macedonia in because, again, it's not really a big loss to the NATO alliance in terms of military uh, issues. It is a big loss in terms of political and, and, and signaling issues. But you could imagine, I think the chances of this is extremely, extremely low, by the way, but you could imagine that Trump is like, Hey, Vlad, like, here's a little olive branch. Can we improve our relations? Because we are worried that Russia and, like, China are forming some sort of axis against America. So, look, to be clear, this is pure speculation. Right. We don't actually know what President Trump's position on this is. But if Macedonia had made this name change when Obama was president, it would have been a lot easier to predict what would have ended up happening. And, you know, now I just want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for doing a wonderful job making the episodes happen every week. I want to thank Jen, who, despite being out this week, did a lot of super, super helpful research and prep work for this episode. And I want you to, uh, you know, send her all of your well wishes 
And uh, I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review to Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you email us at worldly at box.com. We might take some time in responding, but we will respond. Uh, We do like hearing from you, and we do factor in a lot of your thoughts into our planning.